The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 52, wherein we talk Tolstoy with journalist and author Masha Gessen. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And yourself? I'm great. I'm great. If you remember, last month we put out a call to our listeners for their word of the year. We ran through some of the major dictionaries' words of the year, vape, culture, exposure, and some listeners suggested their own. So I'm going to read them to you, Bob. We're going to play a little word association. You tell me what you think of them. Oh, goody. Word association. Uh, I love this game. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Takeaway. My mother. Castration. Mm, I mean, I get it. It does seem to pop up more and more Mm -hmm. these days. It's the name of a radio show at WNYC. It's the name of a seven-year-old radio show (laughs) co-produced by my very own WNYC. It wouldn't be at the top of my list, but I get it. Here we go. Halcyon. Halcyon. No reason in the world for that suddenly to be a word of the year. I don't have the perception that it's any more in usage than it was in the Halcyon days of yore. Privacy. Privacy, important word. It's kind of a zeitgeist word, both in terms of Edward Snowden and online intrusions of uh, our data. But that was also true in 2013 and arguably uh, ever since the Patriot Act, which I think came in 2002. So, eh. Okay. Algorithm. Algorithm. Jeez. Is there like a 10-year time lag on these suggestions? Algorithm? Really? Next. Adult as a verb. Adult as a verb. Yeah, like as in I'm adulting. Well, (laughs) I don't know about adulting as a verb. I haven't encountered that construction. A kind of a new, new way of gerunding. Well, Celeste Brat recommended that word. It was apparently the word that Grammar Girl chose as her word of the year. And Celeste Brat says, this year really felt like the year I started adulting in a real way. I got married, bought a house, and got my first real adult job all in 2014. Mm-hmm. It also feels more broadly relevant because millennials such as myself are finally the dominant generation. Many of us have reached the age bracket where we're focused on figuring out how to adult. Okay. I mean, I'll buy that. I just hadn't encountered it. I do know in our household, when our shipu starts running around like crazy and uh, behaving like an animal, (laughs) we say he's dogging, which is something we picked up from my daughter who has a... uh, some other mixed breed, I don't know, a schmuckadoodle or something like that. Anyway, (laughs) I have more data on dogging than I do on adulting, but I do get it. Okay, on we go. Ratiocination. Ratiocination. Come on, give me a a real world word, not a a pretend one. It's a word. The ratiocination? Oh, is that the cult following of ratiocin? It is the process of logical reasoning. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, hold on. Let's just establish that I just made an unbelievably hilarious joke. Can we just acknowledge that first? <laughs> All of your jokes are unbelievably hilarious. I'm laughing know, on the right? inside. LGTM, the acronym LGTM. LGTM. Yes. Are you familiar with that? 
Lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual? No, apparently it stands for looks good to me and software engineers who code, I guess, are familiar with that acronym because it stands in for a kind of stamp of approval. Mm, SGTM. Doxing. Excellent. Again, it did not really materialize in 2014, but it did very much emerge and become more of a, a zeitgeist thing. This is the practice of locating private information about people whom you want to harass and spreading it around the internet, mm -hmm. sometimes with just catastrophic results. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a good one. Okay, you like it. Okay, I'll, I'll read a couple of emails now. Craig Sweat, you just said the word zeitgeist, Bob. Craig Sweat said, I have no choice but to conclude that zeitgeist should be the word of the year based on the fact that you said it 50 fucking times on the podcast. <laughs> well, you know, he's probably right, although I think the number is not right, but I take his point, except we are discussing words of the year, which are by definition, at least by some, measures of the zeitgeist. So excuse us, Craig, for calling a thing by its name. We'll never let it happen again. So I think we have a winner. You like doxing the best of the ones we read. That was suggested by Nick Picard. So yeah, I like doxing too. I think it really came into its own last year, as they say. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable with that. Okay, so this week's episode, a little more highbrow than our usual fare. I first read Tolstoy... Bob, when I was in college, I never really read Russian literature prior to that. And it was a bit of an eye opener for me. I grew up, as did you, under the specter of the Cold War and kind of had it in my head that Russians were cold, demonic automatons bent on destroying the world or at the very least dominating it. When I got to college and took this class on Russian literature, it was sort of my first realization, naively, that Russians were as adept and nuanced at observing the human condition as Europeans and Americans and the rest of the world. Well, that, uh, I think, tells us a lot more about college-age Mike Volo than it tells us about Russian literature. Yeah, I was pretty sheltered. <laughs> you I could guess. have been so utterly brainwashed <laughs> to imagine that Russian literature was bereft of, you know, soul. But in fact... What you've discovered, it, it, it was a bonanza for you, I guess, because to my mind, Tolstoy and uh, Chekhov are second only to Shakespeare in their understanding of the human psyche. They find universality of human behavior writ large on a vast canvas by Tolstoy and very, very finely in short stories by Chekhov. And uh, wow. So I gather you were pleasantly surprised, eh? So much so that I ended up taking a second semester of Russian literature, and that's when I read Anna Karenina for the first time. And I believe I read the 1901 Constance Garnett translation, which is among the most famous. It has since been translated into English almost a dozen times, including two brand new translations that just came out a couple of months ago, one by a translator and author named Rosamond Bartlett, the other by Marion Schwartz, who is American and has translated many, many Russian works into English. And the publication of these two new translations, yet two more, 
was the inspiration behind a piece by the great journalist and author Masha Gessen, who's a native Russian who now lives in the U.S., uh, a piece by her in the New York Times called New Translations of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina in the New York Times Book Review last month. And I wanted to talk to Gessen about Tolstoy, about Anna Karenina in particular, and about translation more generally. Yeah, and a subject kind of near and dear to my heart because... uh my wife spent the early part of her career as a literary translator. This may come up in our conversation. And secondly, because of the thousands and thousands of pages of Russian literature that I've read, because I, uh, like you, was a college student who just found this immense bounty and dug into it, all in translation. And I've often wondered you know, whether I've ever read Tolstoy or Gogol or Lermontov, or, you know, Pushkin, or whether I've read something else. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly appropriate thing to wonder. Woody Allen has this joke. <laughs> he was talking about how speed reading, this was back from the 70s, he was talking about how speed reading was all the rage. He says he took the course, and sure enough, he read War and Peace in 20 minutes. Brief pause. He says, it was about Russia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's bring in Masha Gessen. We're not going to talk to her about War and Peace. That's a separate show. Hey, Masha, it is a pleasure to talk to you. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So I want to start very narrow with a particular scene that you highlight in your New York Times piece that occurs very late in the novel. Anna and Vronsky are arguing and, well, spoiler alert, this will be their very last argument because not long after, Anna commits suicide and she, of course, never sees Vronsky again. But they're arguing because they're supposed to leave Moscow for the country, and Anna wants to leave on Monday. Vronsky wants to leave later so that he could visit his mother. They argue about his mother. Anna would prefer that he didn't visit her at all because there's a young princess staying there. They argue about just how important it is that Anna's divorce to her estranged husband come to pass. Anna says she doesn't care. Vronsky thinks it'll bring closure. And depending on which translation you read, he says that her irritability stems from the indeterminacy or indefiniteness or uncertainty of her situation. And anyway, he says it'll be better for her future children. They argue about that since Anna doesn't want children. And at the root of all of this toxicity is Anna's jealousy and her belief that Vronsky is no longer in love with her. At one point, during this day-long argument, it literally goes on for the entire day, she turns away to drink from her coffee cup. And I'll quote from the famous 1901 Constance Garnett translation. She lifted her cup with her little finger held apart and put it to her lips. After drinking a few sips, she glanced at him, and by his expression, she saw clearly that he was repelled by her hand and her gesture and the sound made by her lips. I love the way that you just ran through all the detail that's completely irrelevant to what's going on in the scene because that sort of characterizes Anna Karenina in a really good way. I mean, the, it's full of this sort of precise detail that serves to highlight the fact that none of this matters because sort of the whole narrative is constantly about this jealousy that is destroying the love and that is destroying Anna. So... I focused on a couple of word choices that the translators have made in the scene. One of them is repelled, repulsed, disgusted, 
and offended, which are the four different choices that four different translators have made for what Anna saw in Vronsky. When she looked at him and she saw what every woman fears, every person fears seeing, which is a person that they love and who they believe has stopped loving them, being physically turned off by the sight of them. That's what she thinks she sees. Tolstoy seems to indicate that's not exactly what's going on, but she's convinced that Vronsky has stopped loving her. The other thing that I think is really important in the scene is what's happening with her lips and the sound that she makes with her lips or the sound that her lips make. Whether she's slurping or going. Right. Is she doing something to push him away? Is she at all in control? And you argue that Tolstoy's Russian is very clear about this, that she is making the sound with her lips. It's not her lips are making the sound as though it's involuntary. Yet it's been translated many times as just that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that there are two places where Tolstoy places sort of intentionality on her. He says she's making the sound with her lips and she is pushing Vronsky away. And so, you know, I think that the choice of whether Vronsky feels repelled, repulsed, disgusted or being offended is actually very important because only the word repel actually indicates that maybe Anna has some control over it. And also there is the Russian word, which I think is Ruka, Ruka right, uh-huh. which is the word that can either mean hand or arm in Russian. And just about every translator has chosen to translate it into English as hand. But you disagree with that. My guess is that he's painting this sort of triangular picture and that the finger is one element in the picture. She sticks her finger away from the coffee cup. This is important. This is sort of this gesture that is very symbolic of the petit bourgeoisie. And it's another thing that is clearly annoying Vronsky, or she thinks is annoying Vronsky. He notices that gesture. He notices the slurping or whatever sound she's making. And then the arm. So I think the arm is the third element. It's separate from the That's finger. the literary detective in you, right? Because it recalls an earlier scene when he's first becoming infatuated with Anna that he focuses on the curve of her arm? The full arms that are set off by her gown during the, the famous ballroom scene when he sees her for the first time, or for the second time, but he notices her for the first time. And really, they fall in love in the process of dancing. It's the most beautifully written scene. It takes up several chapters in the early part of the book. Of course, that's also my guess, right? Because it's the same word, Ruka, in those early chapters as well. So it is conceivable that he was looking at her hands while dancing. I don't think it's very likely. I think arms are more important in the dance. So there's the question of what Tolstoy had in mind. And then there's also the question of what the translator brings to bear. What responsibility has the translator to try to divine Tolstoy's intentions, understanding that his toolkit in Russian is different than your toolkit in in this case, English. Well, a couple of things. Tolstoy is an incredibly complicated narrator. And the experience of reading Anna Karenina, and this is where I think things get really interesting, is that this is one of those books that Russian speakers and Russian readers read many times in a lifetime. Teenage girls read it as a melodrama, and I'm not sure how teenage boys read it. And then young women read it as drama, and then sort of as you get older, you see just how much irony is in the book. 
it's very difficult to pack that sort of lifetime experience of reading into a single translation. There are a lot of choices that the translator makes about voice. Is the narrator earnest? Is the narrator really having fun with the reader and screwing with the reader a little bit? which I think is what Tolstoy does quite a lot. I don't think it's possible when translating to sort of approximate all the shifts that Tolstoy allows himself in the narrative voice. And in fact, you've described the voice that some of the translators impart to Tolstoy. You say that the Tolstoy of Constance Garnett is a monocled British gentleman who is simply incapable of taking his characters as seriously as they take themselves. You say that Pavir and Volokonsky, the husband and wife team who translated... Anna Karenina about 14, 15 years ago, you say that their Tolstoy is a reasonable, calm storyteller who communicates in conversational American English. You then say that Marion Schwartz, who translated one of the most recent editions, that she has produced what is probably the least smooth-talking and most contradictory Tolstoy yet. And nowhere is that more apparent, probably, than in the very famous, very first line of the novel. I think actually maybe before we get to the first sentence, I just want to talk about this controversy that has surrounded Tolstoy's writing for as long as it has existed, which again goes to the question of intentionality. If you read Tolstoy in Russian, you will notice how unsmooth his writing is. There is a lot of counterintuitive use of language when he very clearly breaks cliches and keeps sort of making the reader think by using a word that is most unexpected in that particular place. What's been very controversial are his repetitions. And this is actually, I think, is fascinating because his repetitions may look sloppy, especially for a non-Russian speaker. He will literally use the same turn of phrase in three or four sentences in a row. The problem is that 100 years later, that has become a very common occurrence in a particular kind of intellectual Russian speech. It's become very playful. So now when you read Tolstoy in 2015 in Russian, you actually hear the irony that is inherent in that kind of intentional repetition, which Tolstoy originated. How is a translator to deal with that? Well, a lot of translators have translated away that repetition by basically erasing it, right? Exactly. So that's one approach. Which is phenomenal to me because it's as if, I don't know, in... Uh, I, I don't even know where to start with this, but if you're looking at a painting by Van Gogh and you decide that, well, the paint is really applied very thickly and that color of blue is clear to the viewer without so much paint being slapped on there. So in this uh, reproduction, we're going to make the plane a lot smoother, which suggests that somehow Van Gogh was careless in his application of the thick paint strokes as opposed to acting with very specific artistic intent. Well, I could argue both sides of that because, you know, let's use your Van Gogh analogy. Should you be viewing this painting by Van Gogh as it was viewed by Van Gogh's contemporaries when that thick paint was jarring? Or should you be viewing it as it is viewed 100 plus years after it was painted, now that it has become a classic now that this painting has been reproduced in every textbook that you know an art student sees in a lifetime and that looks perfectly normal. Would, should the experience of viewing this painting be rendered as equivalent to what it was when the painting first appeared or as equivalent to what it is now? Hmm. That's sort of the question about these repetitions. If you translate those repetitions directly into English, they're quite 
uncomfortable to read in English. And they're very comfortable to read in Russian. So what should it be? Well, okay. So, Masha, you said that getting rid of the repetitions is one route that translators have taken. What is another route? Well, another route is to render them faithfully. It's interesting that every translator, certainly in the last 20 years, has argued that no one has done this before, but this particular translation is actually going to go full force and, <laughs> and show all the, all the roughness in its glory. And then they, you know, they still have to make choices. And really, sometimes it's impossible to render all of those repetitions. And in fact, I think Marion Schwartz goes the farthest in that direction and I think proves that it, it actually doesn't work. There's such a thing as being too exacting. And in this, Masha, you anticipate my question, which I, if we can, I'd like to get to before we even get to uh, the, that iconic opening line of Hannah Karenina. And that is, by definition, translators are dealing with different languages that approach ideas with different vocabulary. And if you make a choice for verbatim to be entirely faithful to the word choices of the author, you have to make choices that may utterly change sentence structure and especially rhythm of the author in the author's voice. Perhaps less so in Tolstoy than let's just say, as long as we're talking about Russians, Pushkin. I thought uh, you were going to get to that, yes. Yeah, Eugene Onegin. Yes, by sounds yeah. a whole lot different if you translate it verbatim in English than it does if you try to capture the cadences and the tone of the original Russian, right? So a translator has to make some really kind of difficult decisions about how faithful to be to the original text if it distorts the melody of the poem. And I assume the same is true, perhaps to a lesser extent, in Anna Karenina and Tolstoy. Well, absolutely. And I'm not even sure you can say what you just said, which is how faithful you can be to the text without destroying the melody, because what is text without melody? Eugene Onegin is a great example of that, because, of course, Vladimir Nabokov famously did a literal translation of Eugene Onegin, which is impossible to read, and that also obviously can't hold to the rhythm of the original verse novel, which Eugene Onegin was. Can that even be considered a translation of a poem? I'm not sure. Considering that and considering what you said about the different ways, different demographics and different generations of readers process an author's words, I don't know how any other way to put this. What the fuck is a translator supposed to do? What's her first responsibility? Well, that's, you know, translators have been debating that for as long as translation has existed. There are different schools of thought, and one is, quite simply, that the experience of reading a translation should as closely approximate the experience of reading the book in the original languages as possible. That doesn't answer a lot of questions, actually, but at least it sets a conceivable goal. There's another school of thought, which is that, no, actually, it shouldn't read as though it had been written in the language in which you're reading it. It should read foreign. There are technical terms for this. There's uh, formal equivalency is the second school of thought, and dynamic equivalency is the first school of thought. When I read something that was translated in the formal equivalency school of translation, I feel like it's sort of like the experience of watching Hollywood actors speak with Russian accents. <laughs> in Hollywood movies. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen John Malkovich in Rounders? It's an experience, I must say. 
<laughs> I haven't actually, but I can I can imagine. But yeah, it doesn't sound Russian, but it does convey a kind of flavor that the argument can be made. I think it also depends on the on the author. I mean, I wrote recently about some translations of Sergei Davlatov's work for the New York Review of Books. And the conclusion I came to when I sort of binge read all the translations of Davlatov that had been done is that for Davlatov, dynamic equivalence doesn't work. His humor falls flat. It cannot be rendered into idiomatic English without losing what makes him special and funny. He needs to have a Russian accent in order to work in English. I don't think that that's necessarily true of Tolstoy. I agree. Yeah, and I don't think that's necessarily true of say, somebody like Haruki Murakami, whose books I've read translated into English, and I very much want those to be as well in idiomatic English, although I can't necessarily put my finger on when and why I would want a particular author accented and when I would want them exclusively in idiomatic English. But let's get... Hey, you know, Mike, I, uh, I read Wind Up Bird Chronicle in Japanese, and it's, it's just a vastly, vastly <laughs> <I'm sure>. better <laughs> literary experience. Well, let's finally get to that. You think it's time to get to yeah, the first line? to that okay. first line, which has been translated, everybody will remember, as all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Either exactly that or more or less that. But Marion Schwartz, who has rendered a Tolstoy that is a bit awkward sometimes in English, to say the least, has chosen an altogether different word Tell me what it was and what you think she was doing. So Marion Schwartz says, all happy families resemble one another. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Resemble. So her argument is that the phrasing that Tolstoy uses in Russian indicates resemblance and not equivalence. Frankly, I sort of failed to grasp her argument because, first of all, the word that she suggests Tolstoy could have used in Russian, which is adinakovy, which is same, just wouldn't work in that phrase. It's not; It wouldn't be intuitive there. In fact, he's not breaking cliché in that particular sentence. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't understand her beef with alike because alike also doesn't really connote sameness. It actually connotes resemblance. Similarity. Um, yeah, so it's a very odd thing because she the points she makes about Tolstoy, I think, are quite insightful in her translator's note. Some of the choices that she's made in the translation really puzzle me, and this is one of them. Well, the opening sentence could be interpreted in one of at least two, maybe more ways, right? The most straightforward way is that happy families are boring because they're all the same. And unhappy families are more interesting because there's a very specific way in which unhappy families are unhappy that differentiates them from all other unhappy families. But yet, as the novel unfolds, you find quite the opposite, that the there's only one happy family in Anna Karenina, and there are some very surprising ways in which that family develops. Meanwhile, all of the unhappy families are, in fact, unhappy because of unfaithfulness, because of jealousy, because of a lot of the things that tear families apart. Exactly. So the question is really, how much is Tolstoy toying with us in that first line? And I should say there's no consensus in this at all. Uh, When I was discussing this with my Russian literary critic friends, one of them, for example, argued that the line actually means that this is sort of the ideal. The ideal would be that every happy family is of a kind, 
That's the way it should be. Or it can be like an essay question. All happy <laughs> families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Discuss. And then he sets about exploring the hypothesis, and lo and behold, nope, it's the opposite. Exactly. 600 pages later, we find out that, yes, jealousy and unfaithfulness and loss of trust work in exactly the same way every time. The other question is, is the one happy family in the novel really happy? That's another sort of set of translator's choices that I ended up focusing on. It has to do with the family that Konstantin Levin and Kitty form. These are the two characters who come together in the course of the novel. Levin is in love with Kitty from the beginning, but Kitty was in love with Vronsky. Then Vronsky dumped her for Anna. Then Kitty came around. They got married. Levin is unreasonably happy. And then Kitty gets pregnant. Kitty has a baby. And it's at that moment that we start to see some cracks in what we think might be eternal happiness for them is when she has the baby. Right. So the question is, what does Levin feel when he sees the baby? Different translators have rendered Tolstoy's word differently. Some have said that he feels disgust. Some have said, I think, that he feels distaste. There's one translation that uses the word squeamishness, I believe, right? Right, which I think is brilliant. That's the Piver and Volokhonsky translation, the 2000 translation. And I think it's the only word that sort of leaves Levin the opportunity for redemption. He feels scared for this little tiny creature. He feels so much compassion. He sees how vulnerable this creature is. That's not disgust. That's not you know being repelled. That's something entirely different. And that's something that leaves that family the option of continuing to be happy. Masha, you misspoke earlier and then corrected yourself when you said that it was at the ball that Vronsky first saw Anna. That, of course, isn't true. He first saw her earlier at the train station. station. He notices her, and as she passes him, they both turn around to look at each other. And Tolstoy tells us, in that brief glance, Vronsky had time to notice the suppressed animation which sparkled in her face and flitted between her shining eyes and the barely perceptible smile curving her rosy lips. It was as if an abundance of something so overflowed her being that it expressed itself independently of her will, now in the radiance of her glance, now in her smile. She had deliberately extinguished the light in her eyes, but it shone against her will in her barely perceptible smile. Whose translation were you reading just now? I was just reading from Rosamund Bartlett's translation, which is one of the more recent translations that just came out in November. Right. I love the word... Well, I actually don't like the word extinguished that Rosamund Bartlett uses because the word Tosto uses is vyklučit, which is the Russian word for turning off. Like a light switch. Yes, exactly. It's a word that you can't use with a candle. It's a very specifically modern word, right? This is an early 20th century novel. And he says that she turned off the light in her eyes. It's very technical. It's not at all sort of moody and romantic, And I think that reflexive use of more old-fashioned language is something that can trip up a a translator when dealing with Tolstoy. Well, Marion Schwartz uses the same word, extinguished. Right. And Constance Garnett, her 1901 translation, she uses shrouded her eyes. Right. Of course she does, yes. Well, I think they're all wrong. (laughs) We were talking about the translator's responsibility a conversation I've had a number of times over the years with my wife, who earlier in her career was a literary translator. 
if you're uh, in the Balkans, if you uh, speak Serbian or Croatian or languages of ex-Yugoslavia and you've read, let's say, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, you've read her translations. So A Hundred Years of Solitude in Serbian, you're reading her. And she says, and she became an actress, and she says it's the same job. She says it's a question of faithfully interpreting the intent of the author, which I guess is a satisfactory explanation as far as it goes. But the problem is actors, especially bad actors, tend to impose their will and stylize the author's words, the author's text, in ways that probably are borderline reprehensible. Is it the same as acting and trying to bring an author's original intentions to life for the particular audience? I think that's a great analogy. And in fact, you've just sort of armed me for responding because, of course, after that piece on the two new translations of Anna Karenina came out, I got a bunch of letters from people saying, why didn't you just write that people should stop translating Anna Karenina? I mean, the the differences between these translations are minor and, you know, stop torturing a great novel. And I think that's the best argument for continuing to translate a great novel is that the interpretation of a great work of art can continue the same way that different actors can reprise the same role in a good play over and over again. Each interpretation brings something new to the author's intent. I think I'd be remiss, Masha, if I didn't take the opportunity to play the Philistine's advocate and ask you In the context of a brilliant novel, a historically important novel, a a genuine masterpiece, whether it isn't just straining at gnats, whether Vronsky was looking at Anna's finger or her arm, whether she was or or whatever, and exactly whether families resemble one another or they are similar or alike – and maybe most especially whether disgust, repulsion, and being repelled aren't interchangeable at all. Like, in the overall scheme of things, does it matter? I mean, yeah, it makes no difference, except that what is language but a collection of words used with some sort of intent and to an effect. And somehow I think that the experience of reading a translation that makes better choices, more accurate choices, maybe more intuitive choices about whether it's a hand or an arm or repulsed or repelled is more pleasurable and more profound, which has actually nothing to do with whether it's more faithful to the original. Masha, thank you so much. Thank you. Yes, Masha, thank you. The fabulous Masha Gessen is a journalist and author of The Man Without a Face, a biography of President Vladimir Putin, and she is currently working on a book about the Tsarnaev brothers, the two brothers behind the Boston Marathon bombings. The fabulous Masha Gessen? I love Masha Gessen. I love her. I do too, but Harvey Firestein is fabulous. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm I'm going with it. I'm sticking with it. I'm comfortable. I'm comfortable with that too. She was... uh, Wonderful, wonderful guest. Yeah, although she does make me sad that I will never read Anna Karenina in the original Russian. Well, I'll put that on the list of things that you regret, Mike. I just have to go. I got to run to Staples and and get more paper. 
<laughs> I'm not a regretful person. I'm really not. But I don't think, going back to what we were saying at the very beginning of the episode, that you or I have truly read Tolstoy. <sighs> exactly. I'll put it on my bucket list. <laughs> Learn Russian, read Anna Karenina. <laughs> okay. And all I want to do is see the Grand Canyon. <laughs> oh, let's do it together. I've never okay. been. Okay. Road trip. Lexicon Valley road trip. I love it. Yeah, yeah. This summer, baby, you and me. Felman Louise style. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. If you want to join us on our Grand Canyon road trip... Write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Please follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in the iTunes store. I want to thank Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast, and the astonishing, breathtaking, marvelous Masha Gessen. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we are done. Dos for Gator. Gator.